very early in the film that came out about, boy, 20 years ago called A Simple Plan, uh, about two brothers and a, and a friend of theirs. Uh, Bill Paxton uh, plays a, a hardworking man, a, a father of a young family. And um, at the beginning of that film, uh, you hear him speak as you kind of see him in his setting. His name is Hank Mitchell, and he says this. Um, when I was still just a kid, I remember my father telling me what he had thought that it took for a man to be happy. Simple things, really. A wife he loves, a decent job, friends and neighbors who like and respect him. And for a while there, without hardly even realizing it, I had all that. I was a happy man. With a setup like that, you know it's not going to go well. And shortly thereafter, three guys are out in the snowy uh, climbs of North Dakota, and they, they happen upon a an airplane that has crashed probably months before buried in snow, and they they move the snow away, and they go into the airplane, and they notice its contents, this large duffel bag, and they haul it out, and they open up the duffel bag, and there's about $4 million in cash. And right then and there on the spot, you might say they're in the midst of what they call a an ethical conundrum. What are we going to do with it? And one of them says we should give back to the authorities. And the other two look at him like he just grew two heads. And therein they make a pact. Okay, just this simple idea. Nobody knows it's here. Nobody will ever know we can be concealed and subtle and never have to worry about money another day in our life. And by that one little choice leads to, as you might expect, a number of other choices and other choices and other choices until it ends in tragedy. But in that simple plan, it revealed something very simple about the way things are with respect to our moral choices. A few weeks ago, we began a series in the Proverbs, which is all about gaining wisdom, because I think you'd agree in our world in which we are literally inundated in facts and data and knowledge, it is one thing to know something, it's quite another thing to know how to apply those truths and those facts. That's wisdom. That's what we need. That's why we're studying the Proverbs. And when we talk about wisdom, most of the time, when you hear about wisdom, you think about how do I preempt error? How do I make sure I don't make a misstep or a mistake? It's true. This morning, though, we're going to look at a passage that is out to preempt not just a mistake, but a moral mistake, a moral error, which in the way we talk about around here, we're talking about sin. And the passage we're going to listen to is going to tell you a story, a story of a particular kind of sin. But I'd like to argue that in that particular story of sin, there's actually something like a little allegory, a larger story within the smaller story. And I would argue that in this story, we find the storyline of every sin. In the story of one sin, we find the storyline of every sin. And you might read, why are we talking about this? Because the the sooner that you and I become acquainted with that storyline of sin, the sooner we know what we need when we find ourselves inextricably bound in it. That's our passage. We're going to start again in chapter 1, this time right around verse 8. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you might as you hear the passage. Proverbs 1, starting in verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. 
for they are a graceful garland for your head, pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We'll all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we said before, the the Proverbs, um, they do have a sort of an original setting to it, and you've probably caught that. Just from this passage, it's, it's imagining parents imparting their life lessons to their children. Helping them to know how to navigate this wondrous but treacherous thing that we call life. Um, if you're a parent or if you're a teacher, then you, can, then you can resonate with my own experience. Whenever I drop my kids off at school, it, it kind of feels like I'm dangling a porcelain cup over a concrete floor. Can they withstand what they're about to experience? Have I prepared them for that? Have I hardened them for that? Are they aware? Have I done what I can? We feel that, and we feel that in this passage. These parents are out to persuade their children that the insight that they want to impart has great gain for them. And so they use these these really evocative images of a of a graceful garland upon your head, this this mark of distinction, this mark of accomplishment, if you if you get it, and, and this idea of a pendant around your neck, this, this very attractive thing that, that holds people's attention and sort of sets you apart as a, as a person of distinction. That's, that's sort of what they want their child to hold on to in the way of their wisdom. Um, when, when I was in Boy Scouts and I would accomplish the, the next rank, um, uh, and they would, mom would sew the, the badge on my shirt, it was kind of like this, I felt this instinct to sort of walk around with my chest out like this, like, this is the new badge I'm wearing, right? Okay, that's a second class now. It's, it's no longer a tenderfoot. Feet are no longer tender. Second class. That's my thing. And it's this noble sort of feeling that you can't really put your finger on, but you, but you love it and you, and you value it. And that's what these parents are trying to get their, their son or daughter to understand, that there is something valuable about the wisdom they have to impart. But in telling the story to their son or daughter that they're about to tell, they are saying this. If you would ever value the wisdom that we have for you, you have to reckon with another storyline. You have to reckon with another alternative tale that has a very different outcome. And only till you reckon with that will you ever be able to appreciate what we have to offer you. And so they tell a story. A story of a particular sin. But a story, as I've argued that has all the marks of the story of every sin. And that story has three features, I find. That's true of every storyline of sin. The first one is as obvious as the nose on your face. Every story of sin is, first of all, a tale of offense, of misdeed, of wrong. 
And you heard that in verse 11 by what these connivers are out to do. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. That's their plot. They're conniving. They're, they're inviting somebody else to come with them in a work of treachery. They, they plan, they hide, they ambush, they pounce. You may remember the famous parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan and what occasions that parable is what? This guy haplessly walking down the road to Jericho and there are others hiding in the crevices ready to, to seize upon him and to beat him and to rob him and to leave him for dead. That's the plot. That's their plot. But if you see that plot in a wider context, in a wider frame, then that is actually the plot of every sin. Being enticed to commit an offense. It's not just a momentary lapse in judgment. It's not just, oops, look what I did. It's a calculated move with a moral quality. And that's why you heard the very last verse of the passage. Do not be greedy for unjust gain. An unrighteous, untoward thing sought improperly and criminally and to another's loss. That's its offense. Every sin has a unique characteristic. Every sin has its own story. But what this story shows us is that there are some things that are true of every sin. There's a a famous book that you may have read from about 15 years ago called The Kite Runner. Uh, It tells the story of this young boy in Iran. And there's a moment that it eventually became a movie. And there's a moment in which the father is sort of imparting wisdom to his son in much the same way as this mom and dad is trying to impart wisdom to their child in which he says this. There's only one sin. Only one. And that is theft. Every other sin is a variation of theft. When you kill a man you steal a life. When you commit adultery, you steal his wife's right to a husband. Rob his children of a father. When you tell a lie, you steal someone's right to the truth. When you cheat, you steal the right to fairness. There is no act more wretched than stealing. In other words, every sin has a moral quality and that every sin is an act of defrauding either defrauding someone else of something that is rightfully theirs, defrauding oneself of what you would keep if you would just refrain from sin, but everywhere and always a defrauding of God. Because in the commission of sin, in following the tale of offense, you are denying God's claim on you. And in that is its offense. Now you hear that and you think to yourself, I know that already. This is unremarkable. You did not need to waste seven minutes telling me that every storyline of sin is a tale of offense and every offense is in some ways an act of defrauding, of theft. Fine. Why do we do it, though? What's the appeal? Why do we keep going there both in subtle and flagrant ways? It's because not only is the storyline of every sin a tale of offense... It's also a tale of promise. Promise of something more. 
Listen again in verses 13 and 14. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We'll all have one purse. Why do people plot? Why do they seize? Why do they sin? Why do they defraud? Because look what we're going to get out of it. You don't do it unless you think there's a payoff of some point. Like That's, <laughs> that's why we do it. Yes, every sin is a tale of unjust gain but it's still a tale of gain. There's something we're out to get. There's something we gain. That's part of its promise. Why is there an opioid crisis in this world? Because there is a kind of unmatched ecstasy that comes with that drug that you can't replicate anywhere else. That's its draw. That's why it's a crisis. That's why they go there, because there's gain in it. Why is there an insurance fraud crisis in this world? Because billions are to be made from a broken system. Why does the persistence and prevalence of abuse, whether in a friendship or in a workplace or in a marriage, persist? Why does it spread? Because there is this noxious but delicious feeling that comes with kicking somebody to the ground and feeling yourself superior. And brothers and sisters, why does racism persist? even in a more subtle and implicit way. Because there's part of us that likes feeling superior to somebody else because they're of a different ethnicity. That's in part why racism persists. Because there's some kind of gain to it. That's why it happens. There will always be some sort of material or psychological gain from it. But especially if you look into the weeds in this passage, there is, there is another kind of gain that you get that that is maybe more intangible, but still real. Part of the promise is of that material psychological gain, but part of the promise is the kind of community that you gain in the plotting. And this is especially true for students. Kids, let me tell you, you will be more tempted to want to join in with stuff that you know is an offense just because you're trying to find your place in this world. You want to know that you can be included. You want to know that you're somebody. And it has every, you, and you think, if I could just be in their group, everything is going to be fine. And so you are drawn to that like nothing else. But there is a community that's drawn together in this kind of sin. They're saying, hey man, let's do this together. Let's, let's share the thrill of the excitement of planning and plotting and hatching this plan. There is a, a particular potency in the promise of this kind of community. These plotters are praying, hey man, shared purse. We'll all have one purse. This will all be ours. Look, if you've ever been a waiter, a new waiter in a restaurant, and that place had a shared tip jar, who benefits most from a shared tip jar? The guy whose day is the first day on the job. Because everybody else is experienced and seasoned in that role. But if everybody shares the tip jar and you're the newbie, you get as much. So these guys are saying, look, you don't know jack about conniving. Stick with us. We'll all, sp- we'll all um, shed it equally. There's a draw to that. There's a potency in the kind of community you get. It's not only what you get, it's with whom you get it. It's this great irony. Right? Like, just before the sermon, what did we do? We, we stood up and greeted one another because we believe that there is power in community. We champion community around here because there is consolation and there is reminder and there is affirmation and there's, and there's rebuke that we need by, by virtue of the community that we keep. And so that's a good thing. But, but here the passage is saying, you know what? 
the kind of community that you keep can render as much woe as wonder. The Nazis don't do what they did unless there was buy-in from more than just the military and the government. Slavery doesn't get to the height that it did, and it doesn't persist in other places and other ways still today unless there is buy-in from a whole culture. I hope this is not news to you, but your culture conditions you. You think a lot of the time that all the things you think are just objectively held. It just sort of came to you. It's just sort of you're illumined in that way. Friends, you and I are shaped by the people we're part of. And the sooner you and I get it, the more we realize that. Because look, if you start looking down your nose at the Nazis or people that help persist in slavery, look, 75 years from now, your great-grandkids are going to look back at you today at the things that you thought were totally normal, and they'll think, you guys were a bunch of, you're full bonkers. You're just bonkers. Yours and my culture conditions us because there's power in that sort of reinforcement through the community that we keep. Every sin is a tale of offense. Every sin is a tale of promise. A promise of gain, whether it's monetary or security or, or posterity, but it's also a solidarity. And that's why this storyline plays out so often and so easily in each of us. But this passage says that there's one other aspect of the storyline of, of sin that we also have to reckon with, and that is this. It is a tale of offense. It is a tale of a promise of something more. But it is also a tale of folly that leads to loss. Um, the mom and dad in the passage, they, they kind of get to the moral of the story that they tell there in verse 17 when they say, Here, honey, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. I don't know a lot about animals. I've heard that my human brain is allegedly larger and more complicated than other animals' brains. However, I know enough about animals that if an animal actually sees you setting, sees you setting the trap that you've set for them, they know I probably shouldn't go there. I think I'll stay away from this area. I think he has it out for me. They stay away. And these parents are saying to their kid, The only thing more foolish in thinking that you can set a trap in plain sight of the thing you're out to trap, the only thing more foolish than thinking that is thinking that you can seek unjust gain without it eventually ending with the most unsuspecting surprise. It's the metaphor for every sin. The unjust gain leads to loss. The greed for this greater thing, this something more, what does it end in? It ends in loss. When we get to the Proverbs that talk about sexual intimacy later in the series, I hope it is not news to you to hear that for all the things, for all the gains that one might sink in looking at pornography, there are more losses in that pursuit than you can measure. That when we talk later in the series about the power of our words, that all of the gains that you might seek in tearing somebody down with your tongue, that there are even greater losses both unto them and to your own heart in the pursuit of that gain. Now here's where i got to do a little sidebar. Because 
true to form, the Proverbs offer us this very symmetrical moral framework, offering us all of these, we'll, say, we'll call them promises or, or proven experience, that's why we call it wisdom. And so if you do this, maybe these things will happen. If you don't do this, maybe you'll be able to avoid these things. And, and we hear that and we go, yes. And yet, some people listen to the Proverbs and go, gosh, he's awfully confident. Maybe even too confident that every quest for unjust gain will lead to loss. Is he too confident? And, and you understand why he might think that way. Because you live long enough, you realize the reason offenses persist is because there are perpetrators that keep going along without justice being done. The reason the National Memorial for Peace and Justice opens in Montgomery, Alabama this week, in the front hall, there is in these main hall, hundreds of things that look like um, coffins hanging from the ceiling to appeal to the hundreds of black men, women, and children who were lynched in this country, aided and abetted by all sorts of white people who call themselves Christians. Because that sort of injustice prevailed in plain sight. And so understandably, people hear those stories and think, gosh, if that's the way things are, if, if injustice is allowed to proceed without impediment, then you know what? What are the chances that God is really here? Ta-Nehisi Coates, he's written a lot. He's an African-American, writes for the Atlantic. He is an avowed atheist. In a, in a, I read a quote from him this week as he recounted in a book of his about his own story of being beaten in plain sight with a bunch of adults that just sort of walked by and did nothing to stop it. He, through those experiences, has this to say from his own deductions, quote, Nothing in the record of human history argues for divine morality, and a great deal argues against it. What we know is that good people very often suffer terribly while the perpetrators of horrific evil backstroke through all the pleasures of the world. There is no evidence that the score is ever evened in this life or any after. From that man's experience, he makes that deduction. If we see no justice, he concludes, therefore there can be no God. But here's the thing. If there is no God, folks, then there is no sin. And there is no just or unjust law. It's just our unwanted viscerally felt experiences of things that we don't want to see happen. And therefore, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever in God, you have this unique struggle. If you're a believer in God, then you have to ask yourself, why is all of this injustice so persisting in our world? Maybe even under my own nose and I don't know it or don't care to know it. But if you're an unbeliever in this world, there comes a point in which you have to ask yourself whether your anger and your anguish isn't in some ways an expression of moral indignation. If there is no morality, then why are you angry? Now, this passage, what I've just talked about, way beyond the scope of it. But it's a real feeling. And if there's anything that perhaps both an unbeliever and a believer can relate to and agree with, it is the experience that both inevitably feel about their own need at times for forgiveness. How often have you heard online, on Oprah, on Facebook, somebody done something wrong and somebody says to them, honey, 
you just got to forgive yourself. You've just got to forgive yourself. You've got you've to take stock of what you've done. You've got to maybe be remorseful for what happened. You've got to learn from it, and you've got to move on. You've just got to forgive yourself. And you know what? This sounds like wisdom. I know it's what I want to believe, but here's the problem. Why should I listen to that voice any more than the voice that says, you know what, you probably ought to just condemn yourself and walk in the shadow the rest of your days. Why is this voice that I might prefer to believe any more authoritative than the one that I would just as soon ignore? And in a moment like that, we're caught. When it comes to the storyline of sin, you and I may be so familiar with the storyline of sin, it's not a storyline, it's practically as long and as deep as a Russian novel. And the question therein lies, whether you feel like it's a storyline of guilt or just regret, the need remains. What will answer the story that I find myself in so often and so painfully? You need another story. You need another story about not just sin, but of sin born away, of sin taken. And folks, there is a story. There is a story of one against whom a plot was hatched. There was one who those people in secret, in hiding, found a way to see him beaten and bloodied and killed and left for dead and eventually killed. There was one who walked knowingly into a trap, into an ambush, but not because he was a fool, but because he loved. There is a story of a sin bearer. And that story goes like this. He walked into that world and suffered injustice so that all the people who are victims of injustice might know that God gets them. But it is that same story that says to all the perpetrators of injustice in this world that God has come to set things right and may even forgive perpetrators who will repent. That is the storyline of the sin bearer. Forgive yourself. You know what Paul says to the Romans in chapter 5? He says, God shows His love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were still enemies, we were reconciled by His death, how much more, now that we've been reconciled to Him through His death, shall we be saved by His life? You want to forgive yourself? Fine. I have a story that will tell you that you can and not just because you want to believe it's true. There is a storyline of a sin bearer. There is a storyline of forgiveness. There is a storyline that answers the story of every sin. And it is that story to which you may rightfully and confidently bring your anthology of stories in that direction and lay them at his feet. Here's the thing. For every part of us that would like to believe that we are forgiven for every invitation to the storyline of sin we have asked or answered, there is also a part of us that wants to know, what may I do to avoid entering into that storyline so often, so readily, so easily. Friends, you must come to that same story of the sin bearer. John Owen was an advisor to Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century. He marched with him into Northern Ireland. 
He was the dean of Trinity College, now in Dublin, which is like 800 years old. John Owen and his wife bore 11 children, and only one of them survived to adolescence. He did not close up shop. He did not kick the Bible into the dirt. He continued to write and to speak effusively of his Lord and what he said in his own book about how do you kill sin in you? How do you step out of that storyline? He said this, a sense of the love of Christ and the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification, which is a big word for just killing. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. How do you do that? How do you kill sin? You have to go to the story of the sin bearer. And then you have to do this. You have to learn how to tell a story yourself. You have to learn how to tell a story to yourself. For John Owen would say in so many words, every time you feel yourself getting close to the storyline of temptation, you must tell yourself the story of the very wickedness of that possibility, of how much you must deceive yourself in order to partake of that sin. You must tell yourself of the story of the dangers of where this leads if you go there, what it will do to yourself, what it will do to others, and ultimately you must tell yourself the story of the guilt therein. But if Jesus' love is true and He's come to bear our sin away, then it is as if Jesus looks to us in love and says, Oh, honey, honey, this is beneath me, and if it's beneath me, it's beneath you. The mother and the father of this passage, they are warning their children of the folly that is inherent to sin. But Jesus at His cross is coming to us and warning us with the love that argues against it. What better way to warn us against the wiles of sin than for someone to intervene at his own cost to bear it away and then say, Honey, this is beneath you because it is way beneath me. Every sin has a simple plan, a simple storyline. But in the love of Christ, there is a simplicity greater still that answers all our temptations, that covers all our sins, but warns us not primarily with shame, not primarily with exclusion, but warns us with love. May we hear the warning. May we hear the love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.